Okay, if you have your Bible or your um, Bible app, turn it to Genesis 18, or you're welcome to use the worship guide. It's printed there as well. We are moving right along in our series going through the life of Abraham as is presented in the text. And, you know, every week... Um, we come to these passages and we tell the part of the story that the passage covers, and then we ask the question, who is Abraham's God in this passage? And if you guys are like me, uh, I know that, that I have found each week that sometimes the passage says, yeah, pretty much exactly what I thought it said. You know, it says what I the stories I grew up in church hearing and yeah, God is. This passage is talking about God as, as, as I know him. Um, but many weeks that we've um, done this, we've come across these stories, and we as we move through them slowly, we've realized, this is not quite how I learned this before. Uh, this is a little different than the, you know, the Abraham folktale I heard growing up. Uh, and we've been challenged. Some of these stories deal with really difficult things, things that are hard to talk about, things that are hard to listen to, things that even confront us in areas that we're not comfortable being confronted. And, you know, our passage for today, uh, I think, is one of those passages that today and next week it's going to be one of those passages that I think for many of us, it plays out a little differently than maybe we might have heard it before. If you're like me and you grew up very much in the world of cultural Christianity. Uh, but Jesus said, if you remember, Jesus asked the Father when he prayed for us in the high priestly prayer in John 17, he prayed, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Jesus' desire for us, his people, is to come to God's word, the scriptures, and to be changed, to be made holy by what he's doing. Not by our cultural stories, not by our cultural values, whether they be conservative or liberal, not by our uh, experiences alone, but that we would be made holy by the truth of God's word. So that's my hope today. That's my hope next week as well as we wrestle with this part of Abram, Abraham's story uh, where he's interacting with God around the city of Sodom. Uh, it's my hope that we would, that you wouldn't hear Charlie and that you wouldn't hear if you grew up with me with folktale versions of these stories, but that you would hear God's word as it's presented in the text, as it's illuminated by the Holy Spirit, and that you'll be sanctified in truth. Uh, that's my hope and that's my desire. So toward that end, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, as Jesus prayed, I pray that you would sanctify us in truth by the truth of your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts here together be pleasing in your sight. You're the Lord, you are the rock, and you are the Redeemer. 
Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, so just to orient us where we are in Abraham's story. We spend a lot of time in Abraham's story uh, looking forward to God's covenant that he made with Abraham. It's a lot of time when God was talking about it. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to give you a blessing. I'm going to do it. And many years passed. And then in the last few weeks, we spent a lot of time with God actually taking that promise and solidifying it in a covenant, which is a super strong promise sealed in blood. That's where God made his relationship with Abraham formal, covenantal, unbreakable. And the promise that came with that covenant was land, offspring, and blessing. But really the emphasis was on God's relationship with Abraham now being intimate and unbreakable. He told Abraham, if you remember, he said, I will be God to you. Everything that God is, he's being that to Abraham. And in his covenant with Abraham, we call it a covenant of grace because anybody who has faith in Jesus Christ is included in that covenant. So we spent time looking forward to the covenant. We spent time talking about the covenant. And now we're spending time talking about what life is like now that we're in it. So last week was the first week in that section. And basically a way that we can frame what we're dealing with now is that these stories from now to the end of Abraham's life are showing us what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be God's people? What does it mean to live in his kingdom? What does it mean to continually be trusting him for salvation? Well, today, the piece in this story that answers those questions, what we find here is that what it means to live in God's covenant, what it means to be a Christian, is to live as advocates for righteousness and justice. What does it mean? to do what we're doing. What does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean to be one of Abraham's children? What does it mean to trust in God for salvation in all things? Well, one of the things that it means is that we live as advocates for righteousness and justice. Now, when the Bible talks about righteousness and justice, especially when they're paired together, like, uh, like I just paired them, uh, the folk, there's a different, they're basically synonyms, righteousness and justice, basically mean the same thing. But the word righteousness, there's an emphasis on right relationship with God. And the word justice, there's an emphasis on right relationship with others. So the big idea of this passage is that what it means to be a Christian is to be an advocate for righteousness, right relationship with God, and justice, right relationship with others. Okay, keep that in your head. Now let's read it. Then the men set out from there. Okay, let's stop. <laughs> what happened last time? Remember, God shows up to speak to Abraham. And in one, some passages it says, God the Lord. In other passages it says, three men. And we spent a lot of time trying to figure that out, and we couldn't do it. God appears to Abraham as three men, and they're talking. Okay, that's where we are. Then the men, that's the men who are the appearance of God, set out from there. And they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them and set them on their way. And the Lord said, 
There it is again, the Lord and the, the men used synonymously. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood, still stood before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and he said to the Lord, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within, within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham answered and he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, uh, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose there are five of the fifty righteous lacking. Would you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and he said, Suppose forty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, uh, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Okay, what's happening here? Abraham had just had this experience where three men had appeared, and also it was the Lord who had appeared. And as we talked about already, we're not quite sure how that worked out. What we do know is that the men and the Lord are both words to describe God speaking to Abraham in this passage. So the men were at Abraham's camp, and they set out, and Abraham kind of followed them along the road. He's basically like walking them to their car, except there wasn't a car. They're walking. And they're in a place where the city of Sodom is down from them. They can see it. And as they go on their way, the Lord stops, and he asks himself a question. Now that, we can imagine that if the Lord is represented as 
three men, I would imagine that maybe the men are talking among themselves. And he says, shall I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Uh, seeing that, and then he describes the covenant he made. Abraham's going to become a great and mighty nations. All the earth will be blessed through him. There it is, land, offspring, and blessing. God basically says, hey, I made this covenant. Remember, we made a covenant. I made a covenant with Abraham. Uh, should I now tell him what I'm about to do? And then the, the author presumes that the answer is yes, because God goes on, and then he says, for God goes on to explain why he's uh, telling Abraham about this. He says, I have chosen him. God has chosen Abraham, and that's why he's telling him about this. He's chosen him in a covenant. And then it gives two reasons that God chose Abraham. They're both marked off by the word that. I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Notice it, it's kind of weird. It doesn't say by being righteous. It says by doing righteousness and justice. And remember, when in the Bible, when we find those two together, very often righteousness, the connotation is right relationship with God, and justice, the connotation is right relationship with others. So God says, hey, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? I made a covenant with him, and I've chosen him so that he would teach his family, and that includes us, to do righteousness, right relationship with God, and do justice, right relationship with others. Then he gives a second reason why he chose him. I, I chose him that uh, the Lord may bring Abraham what he had promised him. What did God promise him? Land, offspring, and blessing. And then God says, because, it's like he's saying, also, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Gomorrah kind of gets overshadowed a lot. There are two cities, probably sister cities, maybe like Portland and Vancouver, um, that are both there that they're looking down on, but very often they're just referred to as Sodom. Kind of like Portland and Vancouver are often just called Portland. Got it? So God says, you know, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. I'll go down to see uh, basically, I'm going to go down and see what's going on there, and then I'm going to know. So that's the scene. God is walking along. Abraham's walking him out, and God says amongst himself, should I share with Abraham what I'm about to do? I made a covenant with him, land, offspring, and blessing. I chose him. I chose him so that he would be an agent of righteousness, right relationship with God, and justice, right relationship with others in the world. And I chose him because I'm going to be the one who brings him everything that I had promised. And the outcry that I'm hearing from Sodom has my attention. And their sin is very grave. The outcry. Well, that implies that something is happening between people. Somebody in Sodom is experiencing something that hurts, and they're crying out to God, and God hears it. And their sin is very grave. They're, I've heard their outcry. I'm going to go check it out, and their sin is very grave. It's like God, again, is righteousness and justice, right? Relationship with me, their sin is very grave. They've broken that. And the outcry, I hear it. Their relationship with each other is not good. 
So God frames this question. Should I share with Abraham, my man, my agent of righteousness and justice, who I've promised everything to, should I share what I'm about to do with him? And then he turns and he begins, the three men begin to, or maybe it was just two men, doesn't say it says the men, walk towards Sodom, but Abraham remained there before the Lord. Now, how that worked out? Did he remain with one and the other two went? Did he remain with all with uh, the Lord in a spiritual sense and the three went? We don't know. It doesn't say. But the important thing is the men moved towards Sodom and Abraham's talking to the Lord. So God is simultaneously going to Sodom to do whatever it is that he's going to do. He actually he hasn't said what it is yet, except he's going to uh, he's going to check out what's going on with this outcry that he's hearing. And then Abraham stands there, and it says that Abraham stood before the Lord, and he drew near. It's almost like Abraham got in front of God and said, hold on a second. Come here, I want to talk to you. And then Abraham starts this negotiating, bartering process. And it starts off in a way that, man, Abraham is being really bold here. God hasn't even said that he's going to destroy the city. Who knows where Abraham got that idea? God said he's going to go check out the outcry he's hearing. And Abraham jumps in front and he says, are you really going to destroy the city? If there's 50 righteous people there, how could you do that? Far be it from the Lord. And if I was God in that moment, I would be like, whoa, Abraham, cool it. I didn't say it. I said, I'm going to check out what I'm hearing. But Abraham is, God is very gracious to Abraham. He says, look, I'm not going to destroy the city if there's 50 righteous people there. And then Abraham still comes off a little hot. He is like, well, if there's five less, would you do it for the sake of five? And God, being gracious, does the math for Abraham. And he says, look, if there's 45, I'm not going to do it. And then Abraham kind of cools off. He's like, okay, okay, okay. Far be it from me. Speak to the Lord in this way, but 30, God says, if there's 30, I'll spare the city. Uh, 20, if there's 20, I'll spare the city. Well, one more, Lord. 10. God says, look, if there's 10, I'll spare the city. And then God goes on his way. Now, this passage, this really comes in four parts. God talking about his covenant with Abraham. God talking about how Abraham is his agent of justice in the world. God telling about the cries that he's hearing come up from Sodom. And then Abraham stepping in to do the thing that God had told him to do, be an advocate for righteousness and justice. But what's amazing is Abraham starts acting like an advocate. He gets right in front of God and he's like, hold on a second. And he's advocating to God for the city. So that's what's going on here. Now, I said the big idea here is that God calls us as Abraham's family to be advocates for righteousness and justice in the world. And we see that happening in this story. But also, uh, we want to fit this in with our series. Every week we've come together and we've asked, who is Abraham's God in this passage? We want to focus on him. We're, if, if we can get to know him in these stories, that'll tell us what we need to know about ourselves. So 
let's ask that question. Who is Abraham's God in this passage? Well, one thing about God that we see here really stands out to me above all else. And it's the fact that he listens. He's a listener. Before he talks to Abram, he says, amongst himself, whatever that means, should I, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And then he listens amongst himself. Yeah, we covenanted with him. We, we gave him something to do, advocate, righteousness, and justice. We're delivering the promise to him. And then he says he hears the outcry against Sodom. He's listening to hurting people. And then Abraham steps in, maybe out of over-enthusiasm, maybe out of maturity, maybe out of great wisdom, and starts to advocate for the city to God as if God was going to do something rash and furious. And what does God do? He listens. So in this story, we see that God calls us as Abraham's family to be advocates for justice. The way we treat one another should be holy. Advocates for righteousness, the way we live before God, should be holy. But we also see that the God that we're talking about, that, that, that is holy and deserves for us to treat him a certain way, and the God who is so holy and good that it calls us to treat others a certain way. That God is a listener. He calls us to be advocates, and then he shows himself to be one who listens. And that is the overarching theme of this whole story. Now, there's a piece of this story that we need to dig into. What exactly was going on in Sodom, right? This is something we need to know in order to understand the impact of the truth that our God is a listener and the weight of his charge to us to be advocates for righteousness and justice. What was going on in Sodom? Well, Remember how I said one thing we don't want to do is just hear these stories and assume that they say exactly what we learned in the folktale versions of these, if you're like me and you grew up in church? Well, we don't want to do that here either. There is a cultural answer to that question, what was going on in Sodom. And it's not really the whole truth or even the right way to paint it. In order for us to know what was going on in Sodom, that God himself said, I'm going to go down and check this out, we should figure out what the Bible says about what's going on in Sodom. Let's not fill in our, that blank from our cultural perspective. So according to the Bible, what was happening in Sodom? Well, there's a couple things that we know from Abraham's story thus far. We learned in Genesis 13, remember that's when uh, Abraham and Lot separated. Lot went and moved near Sodom. In Genesis 13, it says, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. They were unrighteous. They were not living before God in the way they should. But we get no details other than they were wicked and they were great sinners against the Lord. Okay? So, general idea. 
They're, they're, they're basically rejected God. Okay, next, in Genesis 14, remember this is when Abraham fights that world war, it says that the king of, well, we read about how the king of Sodom tried to trick Abraham into becoming his subject. Remember that? And it was a very wicked thing. Well, from that we can learn that the people of Sodom uh, don't necessarily, at least the king there, they're not in the habit of treating other people well. So thus far we know that the people of Sodom, they have rejected God. That's unrighteous. Thus far, we know the people of Sodom are not treating others well. That's unjust. But still no real details. Well, next week, we're going to get into this whole story about Sodom. And what we see in Genesis 19, we'll get into the details next week. But this week, we need to get on the table the, at least the big picture of what was going on there. We see in this next chapter that we'll get to next week that the men of Sodom uh, neglect hospitality. Uh, they seek to sexually assault um, two messengers from God who are visiting Lot. Um, so the men in the city try to, try to sexually assault two men that are there visiting Lot. Lot... Uh, Abraham's nephew actually responds to them, uh, don't act so wickedly. And then he himself, he says, don't act so wickedly to the men. And then he says, here, take my daughters. So it's almost like Lot was, it's not almost, it's clear that Lot was uncomfortable. He condemns the, the um, uh, that it was men trying to, uh, sexually assault other men, he condemns that, and then he offers his daughters as a remedy. So we see that even the guy who's supposed to be the good guy in Sodom is all messed up with sexual immorality. Uh, next chapter, um, we see this, that there's multi-layered depravity regarding hospitality, regarding sexual immorality, sexual assault. There's a thing there about uh, men pursuing men sexually, and then there's a thing there about uh, an inappropriate trade as if sexually assaulting a man sexually assaulting a woman is okay when a man sexually assaulting a man is not okay. There, it, it doesn't add up. We see multi-layered depravity. So that's Genesis. Reject God, behave wickedly towards others, multi-layered sexual immorality. And then, in the new, and then later in the Bible, there's two other places where the sin of Sodom is named. Um, one is in the book of Jude, near the end of the Bible, written by Jesus' little brother, uh, and he names Sodom's sin. And he says Sodom's sin consists of two things. Number one, sexual immorality. And then what Jude says, and I quote from Jude verse 7, pursuit of unnatural flesh. And the best we can tell, Jude is making a reference to uh, same-sex sexual relationships. So Jude says sexual immorality and then same-sex uh, sexual activity. 
And then in the book of Ezekiel, we get maybe the biggest picture of all. And this is the part that should surprise us, especially if you grew up in our culture, hearing Sodom as representative of something specific. It says in Ezekiel 16 that the sin of Sodom was pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, not aiding the poor and needy. And then it says they were haughty and did an abomination before the Lord. And biblical scholars will help us to see that when it references the abomination, Ezekiel is using language to refer again to kind of sexual immorality that we've seen thus far. So, according to the Bible, the sin of Sodom was rejecting God, treating people poorly, rejection of the value of human dignity, sexual immorality, which included engaging in and pursuing same-sex sexual activity, sexual violence, hoarding of riches, and neglecting the poor and the needy. Now, in our cultural narrative, when the word Sodom is thrown out, it really only refers to one of those many things. But according to the Bible, the sin of Sodom was not just explicit homosexual activity. It was, that was part of it, but also sexual immorality, sexual violence. And then in case anybody out there in Sodom is feeling self-righteous because they didn't do that, hoarding of riches, neglecting the poor, pride, a haughty spirit, and all of these things, rejecting God. Okay, so that's the sin of Sodom. And God says, I've heard the cries. Well, every single one of these issues really is a justice issue. It's a righteousness and justice issue. All of these things have to do with living well before God and living well before others. And God hears the cries of those who experience injustice. Now, who's crying out? Well, maybe it's the poor. Maybe it's the needy. Maybe it's victims of sexual assault or those who experience sexual disillusionment or pain. That's probably the case. But you know, if we ask the question, who's crying out, there's something else in the text that's going to surprise us. The only time in this text, and it happens in next week's text, we'll hit it then, but I want to show you what it is. The only time we have any record of anyone in Sodom, not that it's the only time that it happened, but the only time it was recorded in this book, crying out against sin in Sodom, was the outcry of Lot, Abraham's nephew. When the men came to his house, and they tried to, they said, bring out your, the men who are visiting you so we, can, so we can have sex with them. They tried to sexually assault lots of people who came and visited him. And he says, stop acting so wickedly. 
here, take my daughters. Now, this is a little confusing because that is abominable, what Lot did. Horrible. But it says in 2 Peter that Lot was a righteous man. Now, we know that Lot was not righteous because he did really good things, because here we have an example of him doing something pretty terrible. So how could Lot be righteous? Well, you know Abraham himself, God's man in the world, God's advocate for righteousness and justice. You remember the stories? He tried to sell his wife out to the king of Egypt. And then he cheated on her and sexually assaulted a lady who was working in his service. But he was righteous, not because he did good things, but because God declared him to be righteous when Abraham had faith in his covenant. So what kind of people are we dealing with in this story? Every single person in this story is a great sinner before the Lord. Now, what kind of people are crying out to God in this story? People that God have declared to be righteous, but because of nothing that they have done. Now, when we talk about sexual sin or homosexuality in particular in the church, we have so often for many generations, talked about it as an us and them situation. There's us, the people of God, and then there's them, the people of Sodom. We see in this story that the outcry, the only one mentioned, God says, I'm going down because I'm hearing outcries comes from somebody who is supposed to be part of the people of God who had no moral high ground on the issue. Now, the scriptures are clear that the same-sex sexual activity that was going on in Sodom was not pleasing to the Lord. And the Lord considered it a matter of injustice. But the scriptures are also clear that the people who don't engage in that aren't any better off. And folks, we need to hear that as a church. Do you know that God doesn't hear our prayers because we do a good job living righteously before him? That's not why he hears us. Do you know that we don't have any moral high ground to condemn people or label people in the LGBTQ plus community? There's not a person in this room that on some level is not guilty of the sins of Sodom. Everyone here, if you haven't partaken in sexual immorality, then tell me you haven't ever looked down on the poor or that you haven't hoarded your riches. So, God tells Abraham, you're my man. You're my agent of righteousness and justice in the world. God tells Abraham, I'm listening to you. I'm listening to these cries. And he's speaking about specific sins 
but he's also speaking about sinners of which we are a part. And that's what's going on here. Okay, well then what happens? Well, God hears those cries. Folks, let me tell you, if you have ever, ever, ever cried out to God because somebody hurt you, somebody took something from you, somebody abused you, somebody lied to you, God heard your cry, no matter how much sin you have on your own hands. And that's incredible. God hears he listens. And then Abraham, who, if we're going to be morality police, has no right to advocate for anybody in Sodom because of his own sin. And Lot, who has no right to cry out to God because of what he himself is also doing. God hears them. Do you see here that God listens to the oppressed and the oppressor? When they cry out, he listens, and then he goes down there. God says, I want to see for myself. Now, when God says this, I'm going to go down there, it shows the depth and level of his compassion and the way he relates to us. Folks, there is no sin that is outside. That is, there's no sin that's so bad that God wouldn't enter in to go and be with the person and find out what's actually going on. I think about the story of Zacchaeus, a terrible sinner. <laughs> and Jesus says, today I'm going to your house. Hey, man, we're having dinner at your place. That means something. But there's something here uh, that should confront us. Two things. First, we as the church should be confronted about the way that we talk about other people's sin. On one hand, we talk about some sins as if, oh, those people... And let's be honest, as a church, we've talked about sins of homosexuality that way. This passage should confront us. It should also confront the way we excuse certain sins. You know, it's hard to live in Portland and say, you know, God's plan for sexuality, there's really only what the Bible presents. What it means is either celibacy or uh, intimate sexuality shared within the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman before God, as long as that's consensual and it honors the other partner. Well, that's what the Bible teaches, but that's not popular in our city. And it's hard to say that out loud. But folks, the Bible here in this story confronts the way that we either pass over it or we major on it. We should be confronted here. The second thing is that we need to be reminded that God's mission for us as his people um, 
is not just a spiritual thing. It's also a physical thing. You know, in the church, there's a long-standing tradition on one hand that says the mission of the church is a spiritual mission. All we're supposed to do is tell people about God's plan for spiritual salvation, as if our only job was to populate heaven with disembodied souls. But here in this passage, God, who is spirit, goes down to confront physical, real human sin. And God calls Abraham, who is a human being, to be an advocate, not just for righteousness, right, standing before God, but also for justice, the way that we treat one another. You know, there's a whole other tradition which says that the mission of the church, spiritual stuff, let's just leave that to God. Our mission is really just a physical thing. We're going to serve the poor. We're going to go out there and stand up for those who are oppressed. And we're going to do, we're going to, we're going to be political advocates. We're, the spiritual stuff, let's, God's going to work that out. We do physical advocacy. And we as a church tend to say it's either a spiritual mission or a physical mission. And we read this passage and we see that it's neither, either, or. It's both. So we read this passage and we're confronted about the way that we talk about sin and we treat people around sin. And then we're confronted about the way we offer the world a solution to sin. Because we usually only tell half the story. So we read this passage, and we, like Abraham, have gotten in front of God and acted like we are the ones that he should be listening to. And we often start to negotiate. And we think that's what it means to be a Christian. And you know what God does in all of this? When we stand confronted, when we stand indicted, and when we act like we actually have something to say to God, do you know what he does? He listens. Just like he listens to the cries of sinners who are reaching out for salvation. He listens to the cries of his people who are trying to offer salvation to the world in his name and do a terrible job of it. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing who God is? A listening God. Folks, when we talk about these issues, we talk about justice issues, we talk about issues around sexuality and holiness, we don't even listen to each other. But God hears us. And when we go out and we look at our city and we see the homeless problem, we see the, uh, a city that's very positive about all kinds of sexual expression that, that the scriptures wouldn't affirm. We write our city off. We don't listen, but God listens. And we see all of this, and we know that it's true, not just because of this story, but because God came down to Sodom. Because ultimately, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us sinners. So that's the story. That's what all this is about. It's really a part one. It's incomplete. There's no tight 
tidy ending. Next week, we're going to see what happens when God goes down to Sodom. We've already told part of the story, so we're going to get to that. But for today, I just want us to sit in these two realities, that God has called us to be advocates for righteousness and justice. And guys, we haven't done a good job. And that God hears us. And God hears the broken world. In all of these things, he's a listening God. You know, Jesus Christ is spoken of as the Word made flesh. And that's not a word that God has spoken without listening to us as well. Isn't that amazing? That's the beauty of the gospel. God is honest about who we are. He's honest about what he calls us to be. And then he's open, honest, and explicit about the beautiful grace he offers the oppressed and the oppressor because of Jesus Christ, the King of righteousness, the agent of justice, who was crucified for our sins to the glory of God the Father. Isn't it amazing? Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word written and your word living, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this story about Abraham, our father. Lord, these kinds of things where we have to do big, big talk, you know, the hard stuff, it's uncomfortable. And, but, you know, you're not uncomfortable. Uh, you are never surprised by us. You are always in love with us. And you always hear us. Thank you for hearing our broken proclamations and making them holy. Thank you for calling us to do your work even though we fumble around in it. And Lord, thank you for accepting any single person, no matter what their background, no matter what they do, no matter what happens to them. You hear their cry. Thank you. All of this is in Jesus. We praise him. Amen.